stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni, and I'm joined by Mark Chenoweth. Um, and we have some, uh, I think, exciting news. We, we filed our relentless uh, uh, main brief before the Supreme Court. Now, I think we've talked about it, but we will talk about it eventually. But the news is that we had a number, a number of amicus briefs filed this week on our behalf. And um, Mark, I think that it's pretty remarkable that in Loper Bright, the amicus briefs in that case were deemed to have been filed in this case. Right. And the Supreme Court, basically, the Supreme Court didn't want everybody to have to file new amicus briefs because the Chevron issue is the same in Loper Bright and in Relentless. And how many were filed in Loper Bright uh, uh, ballpark? Easily 15. Okay. Okay. Might be, but that's it. I, I it, it escapes me the exact number, but sure. it's a lot. Um. And here, and then there's multiple parties doing that as well. So um, in any event, uh, I— so, so effectively, that's saying to us, you guys need to read the amicus briefs from that case, too. Exactly. <laughs> that is correct, which I've already done. But I, but so have the people who put in amicuses here. One of the interesting things about this is because Supreme Court took the relentless case, people who put in amicus briefs are able to read two things that they wouldn't normally be able to read. They're able to read the government's view of Chevron. Right, their response. And they're able to read the amicus briefs in support of the government. And that's what these people did, by and large. And they then commented on what they thought of those arguments in many cases. And um, we just have a short segment here, but I'd like to just highlight who filed and and some of the interesting things they said. Um, uh, One of my favorites in this is a brief of the New England Fisherman Stewardship Association as amicus curiae in support of the petitioners. Um, And... The um, they're obviously New England fishermen, and they have filed a brief that um, says um, basically their argument their their argument that we also make is that look just because the when Congress chooses not to fund something that does not give the agency power to find other th- sources of funding that is more an indication that Congress doesn't want this done over and above the amounts they funded. Right. It's one of the limits Congress can place. Correct. Right. And and so um, they they then say that um, – I'm just going to read a few portions of it. The real-world consequences of Chevron deference here are akin to forcing fishermen to pay – feed and board agency observers whose competence for seafaring enterprises of any kind would frequently make the Keystone cops blush. And they then, um, I'm not going to go over their real Chevron argument, but but their consequences of what happens when the agencies are allowed to do this, and Congress wasn't able to say exactly what goes on, is that these, they point out that these at-sea monitors only need, uh, they only have to have graduated from high school and get 12 days training. And that will make a mat sea monitor to go on these boats. And they point out our boats. But then I just want to read this because it's real good. 
To begin with, the agency has no reason to believe and certainly does not attempt to require or observe whether their at-sea observers have any sea legs whatsoever. Instead, those typically land-bound observers routinely suffer from seasickness, often cripplingly, cripplingly so. They may also get called on to help in an emergency and either freeze or, blessed with but 12 days of training, make the situation worse. They might fall overboard, which is a risk that vessel's regular crew must try to prevent, thereby stealing their attention from their own safety and their attempt to bring home a good catch. Or they might panic, having never been through the sort of experience a well-seasoned North Atlantic fishing vessel crew knows about. And that's storms, all right? I, I mean, there's other things, but I don't, if you've ever been out in the, the North Atlantic in a storm, it's horrific. Yeah, and, and you don't even have to be in the storm. The swales can be at the edge of the that, storm that too, is, right? That is true. I, I just remember once racing my sailing boat back from a nor'easter coming in, and it is not uh, it, it is not something you, you can't panic then. Not pleasant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and these are greenhorns essentially. Right. So, and anyway, or certainly, certainly they can be. And, and I thought that those were real world facts that was interesting to bring in. Then there's our friends at Buckeye. David Tryon really did uh, outdid himself, I think, in in this brief because what he does is look what was argued, and then say, well, wait a second, is this true? And one of my big bugaboos uh, that I have it has really bothered me is when they say that Chevron leads to uniformity in the law. I think it's the exact opposite. And so, of course, since he argued what I believe, I really liked it. <laughs> and, but <laughs> it he, does tend to work that way. But he talks about how it doesn't create uh, uniformity except for one thing. The government always wins. He talks about a 94% success rate, and he gives the court – um, a lot of data points on that. And I thought it was interesting. We'll talk in, in Jarsaki, Kavanaugh was asking, well, what are the differences in court and what are the differences in the SEC? And one of the differences is, hey, they win 95% of the time and only like 70%, 65% in court. This is the sort of thing that, that the court wants to know about. What are the real world consequences? And it's the government always wins. And even when the government changes its policies, it always wins. So that shows why there's no uniformity. And I thought it was a very good argument. Um, and then uh, the other thing is he talks about the big thing that has driven the administrative state, the idea that the administrators have special knowledge that courts don't have. And he uses, uh, he cites- he well, cite, well, These at monitors don't have special knowledge. They, You've just They don't, but the they mean brief. the administrators would know yeah, more. You know? I know, but still. And so he, he undercuts that by saying that, um, and, and he quotes- uh, Elena Kagan in Presidential Administration from the Harvard Law Review in 2004 that these decisions are made kind of in a black box. And what really is the expertise? If they do have expertise the judges don't have, what are judges good at? Well, you know, we just passed, but I'm not so sure I love it, but it, there's new expert rules in the federal rules. And what are they about? They're about judges determining whether or not the experts are experts and have really used their expertise. And if they can do that in Daubert, why can't they do this here and have a duel of the administrative state's experts and whoever the parties is experts? Right. And you do it outside the administrative context. You do this all the time. Right. Judges do it all the time. Parties Con do it all the time. Constantly. So I thought those were good arguments. I thought they were well presented. And I didn't really see that expert stuff as much. It's touched on in others. But I think this really boiled it down. Um, then I want to quickly go through um, Southeastern Legal Foundation uh, gave us a brief, even though they had done one in Loper Bright, and they um, they they really pound on the fact that this congressional appropriations that are being substituted, it just 
is a horrible violation of the separation of powers. And they really hit on it. They also hit on uh, the necessary and appropriate uh, language of the statute, which I have always said, look, it's got to be limiting. They put that in there, even though the court didn't take that question. We want to teach the court. And so I'm a pre- I appreciate that it's in here. Um, then we got um, a, a brief amicus curiae. I think it's their their first in here, Advancing American Freedom uh, is a, nor- a new organization. And uh, they filed on behalf of a whole number of, of societies and groups. Um, and uh, their uh, big argument, they really hit on silence. They started right out the box. They said, if s- silence, um, the, the court should rule for petitioners and find that Congress did not silently authorize these agencies to exercise the power of the purse reserved for Congress. And they go on often on what that would entail. Um, so uh, we thank them as well for getting this uh, uh, this brief in. And then an interesting brief, and the next two are, are uh, I'm going to talk about them together, brief of amici curiae, which is all former state court judges. And what they do is say, but, from from states that don't have Chevron deference, right? Correct. Yeah. Bo- both the United States and its amici have a- have advanced overwrought predictions of a convulsive shock to the legal system that will result from overruling Chevron. See, Loper Bright response brief at 10. They wouldn't get to do that if this hadn't taken, right? And what they do is calm the court down that there's horrible results by going through all the states that have recently removed Chevron deference and all the non-terrible things that have happened. And I think that's extremely useful. The sky has not fallen. The sky has not fallen. Then we come, I, I didn't I don't, I didn't recall that they were going to do one, but the Ohio Chamber of Commerce put one in. And it's very well done. And it too points out, um, because it is Ohio, they point out that Ohio has gotten rid of this. And Ohio Just has- Just recently, one yeah, of the most recent ones to do it. Correct. And they say, look, here's why they did it. Um, it's very similar here. The states are uh, laboratories and the, and the experiment's working well and you should adopt it, basically. Um, so that was a very helpful addition as well. And then I finally want to uh, just bring up the brief of Professor Aditya Bamzai. Am I saying that right? We met him. The other yeah, Aditya. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he did, it, he did a brief in support of neither party. It's all about the APA. But what it really shows is that the APA, if properly used, doesn't really have Chevron. And um, so he didn't come out for our side, but I believe that if, uh, you know, I would much prefer this be a constitutional issue, but to the extent they did want to just, because Chevron doesn't mention the APA, never mentions it at all. Well, he's with us on the, on how to interpret the APA. Correct. So that's I mean, exactly right. But, so, yeah. so, um, and th- so that's what it's about. So um, I think it was interesting that we got that many uh, amicus, even in this case, but I think it did allow people who wanted to, to respond to some of the folks. So um, I thank all those people, but I do think that, um, uh, all of them added something, which is, you know, it's good. They all didn't say the same thing. Oh, they all said get rid of Chevron except yeah, yeah. for the professor, but um, they all have different perspectives. And I, I really like the fisherman's brief. <laughs> I, I just think it's it's important for the court to understand that these at-sea monitors are not an unmitigated benefit. And, you know, the idea of putting these inexperienced people in harm's way, boy, that, you know, it, that's not a great idea. It's not a great idea. It, it isn't, and particularly um, then having you to pay for the people you're 
minding, really. So anyway, uh, we thank all, everyone who put in an amicus brief. Absolutely. And we hope the court uh, pays attention to them. I thought they were all very well done. And um, I think there's an awful lot of paper for the court to read now. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking forward to the government's brief uh, on December 20th. 